<laughs> Good morning. Welcome, everybody. I'm Pastor Bruce, if we've not met before. Good to see you here. And for those of us that are online this morning, welcome. There's about 25 or so of us out at the beach still, and they're returning today from a camping trip. And if you didn't hear about the camping trip, it's because it all has to be arranged like clear back in January. You know how things go where things get snapped up so fast? So uh, I think we found a good site out there um, near Barview, and it's a great place to go camping, so I'm sure it's going to come up again. So stay tuned, keep your ears open for future announcements so that you have an opportunity to go. Perhaps it's a huge campground right by the beach, beautiful stretch of beach. We had beautiful blue skies. Uh, Jenny and I came back yesterday and, uh, and slept a little bit better last night. <laughs> we slept in a tent, and it was great fun. So uh, if you want to look forward to a fellowship time and a hanging out together, it's a great opportunity. Also, instead of going out to Barton Park next Sunday after church, we tend to lose a lot of people in the, the distance involved and to have a picnic out there. And we don't have any baptisms lined up this time around, so we thought it'd be better to fellowship together. So after church next Sunday, we're going to go down to the fellowship hall and have a potluck uh, lunch together. Or we might even be outside if the weather is cooperating, um, right out there on the front strip there. So uh, we'll provide the chicken and the tableware. Uh, bring a salad, side dish, dessert, whatever you want. We're going to leave that wide open, unorganized. That always comes out best. Uh, but we'll have a great time of fellowship together, right? And that's what it's all about. So look forward to that next Sunday. Any other general notes we want to make before we go? Ready? Okay, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we come to your house to worship you, God, we come for refreshment, for renewal, for life. We come to you, Lord God, to give you praise and glory and honor. We thank you, Father, that your spirit will touch us all this morning, that we will all feel the refreshment that you bring into our lives. You are the meaning of life. You're the one that gives us purpose. And, Lord God, there is hope in this world because of who you are and what you're doing and what you will do through Christ Jesus and the world to come. Thank you for all the promises that are fulfilled in Christ and that we look forward to the future. You are our God, and we thank you that we are your children today. We come to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Start with uh, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. The band is all out camping for the most part or hunting, as Jack's concerned. So, <laughs> All right, here we go.
turn our heart, turn our whole selves, Lord, over to you and surrender, Father, all the things, all the worries, all the cares, Father, that you uh, can take care of so wonderfully, Lord. So we just cast those down at your feet, and we thank you, Father, that you return your peace and your joy to us, Lord, in exchange. And Father, um, the very thing that we notice more and more and more as this world goes on is how much we need you every hour, Lord, and so we just pray that um, we would turn our eyes to you every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the Cry. 
Father, thank you so very much that when we sing these words, our righteousness is nothing we could achieve. We couldn't create it. We couldn't obtain it. We couldn't keep it, not on our own effort. But Lord God, you declare us to be righteous by your grace through faith in Jesus. And so God, that's a wonder that we have from you that we don't merit, we don't deserve. And we are tempted and we do fall into temptation but we don't want to. Your Holy Spirit keeps moving us out of that dark place and into your wonderful light, your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your compassion, your love. They, Lord, you always call us close to you. And so, God, we come to you this morning declaring Jesus is our Lord, not just words, but a living relationship with you. You're our Lord, and we thank you so very, very much. We thank you that Christ did, in fact, die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Father, that when Christ was buried, that wasn't the end. Lord, you raised him from the grave. We have raised him up, Lord God, and we are guaranteed not only forgiveness, but eternal life because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and we want to serve you with our very lives, too, for your glory, for your name's sake that the world can receive and believe the good news. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to invite all the kids, including middle school and high school, and Gabe, come on up here and meet us here in the middle. And we've got a Bible presentation for Richard. It's our tradition here at the church. There's another uh, youth out at the coast that will get their Bible next Sunday. And Francisco, did you want to say something, or do you want me to carry the freight? Okay. He's one of our CE elders. I, I did it already. Too late. Too late. Okay. Well, we'll wait for uh, Richard to come on up. Come on down. Yeah, come on up. You can stand, sit, kneel, hop, skip, and jump. I, uh, no, I'm, it's wonderful to have Gabe back. Yeah, and Rachel and Isabel. All right. Okay. Well, good to see you here. Good to have Gabe back, yeah. This is a great Bible. I've, I've been looking through it this morning, and it's got, it's a NIV. It's called the Adventure Bible, and it's our tradition at the church that we give every year, was it third graders? And that group, a, a new Bible that they can call their own, and it's really neat. It's got all kinds of little extra assistance in here and colored stuff, and did you know, and something to think about, and all kinds of little extras that make it come alive. And so this is our gift to you, Richard, as your Bible from us to you. And I'm excited for this, and we're going to have a special prayer for you this morning. So um, let's, now this is what we're going to do. We're going to scrunch together a little bit, and I'm going to lay hands on Richard. We can all lay hands in this direction on one another, just kind of create a little chain here. And we're all going to bow our heads, and we're going to pray for him and the future that lies in await. Father, thank you so very much. It's a great privilege to have your word. 
Your scriptures, Lord God, are truly wonderful, and they tell us who we are and who you are and how we connect with you and each other. God, thank you for Richard. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit's leaning and lifting him and your guidance and inspiration for him. We thank you, God, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the future awaits. And I pray for Richard that everything that he does in the years that lie ahead, Lord God, as we would all want, that we want to give you glory. And I pray that Richard, too, will feel your love and embrace you as you've embraced him today. Thank you, Father. May this Bible come alive by the power of your Holy Spirit in him and through him to others. In Jesus' name, amen. How awesome is that, man? Enjoy your Bible. It's cool. Congratulations. Yay. All right. God is good. Well, Susie's right there waiting for the fifth grade and under. If you're a guest this morning and you want to go with your kids, feel free. Obviously, Gabe is a youth leader. I can't do that anymore. Um, go with Gabe, middle and high schoolers, and have a great time. All right. Awesome. The message this morning will be a little bit shorter, I think, because I really wanted to, yeah, I was thinking about attaching it to last Sunday's sermon, but that just looked too long, and it also contains a few phrases that I just didn't want to glance over. I really felt like we should take a deeper, richer look at the text that we're going to read this morning, and so I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. For those of you that haven't been with us uh, along the road, we've been on this journey through this wonderful book called Romans, and we're looking at it sequentially Sunday after Sunday, and today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. Some of these words will sound very, very familiar to many of you. The familiarity might even be a risk what I hope we'll do this morning is set aside whatever preconceived ideas we may have had about what certain phrases in this mean, and that we will hear again with a fresh set of ears and open hearts and minds to what God is telling us in this passage this morning. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read your word together today, we pray that your Holy Spirit brings to life in us what it means, and not just what it says. Help us, Lord God, to embrace the truth. Help us, Lord God, to be open. And Lord God, if we've had any misconceptions or we're confused about any bits of it, Lord, we pray that you will bring clarity today, that we will understand, receive, and believe all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many of us, and I'm not, this isn't a guilt trip, but how many of us find that these verses have some really familiar rings in it? Yeah, many of you that know the Roman road of salvation and all that, you know it. You've heard it many times. I myself have heard it many times. Bible camp, church sermons, Sunday school, uh, family, all that. It's very, very common and well known. But for some of us, it may seem rather confusing, actually, the going up, the coming down. What is that all about? Why is that there? And sometimes we think we understand parts of it, but we actually don't. 
and I want to look at that very carefully. Um, one of my favorite authors is Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, and one of my greatest pleasures was when we went to uh, Cambridge and we went into a little nearby pub. And where? Oh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, okay. Wrong, wrong university, but that's me. And uh, we, that wasn't what got me going. But what really impressed me was I got to sit in one of the seats that he used to sit in as he sat there with C.S. Lewis and those guys and just kind of kicked around ideas and stuff like that. And, and I just was like, kind of tingly all over. And I'm glad I got to sit there because Tolkien writes some amazing things, but he also writes some really funny, clever things. And in the Lord of the Rings, in the first Fellowship of the, of the Ring, the first point, you got Bilbo Baggins, one of the characters, and he's having a farewell birthday party. They don't know it's farewell yet, but it's his 111th birthday, and it's a big celebration. And as he stands up to address all the other characters there at his birthday party, he said something that leaves the reader's head you know, scratching, like, what is he really saying? And I'll, I'll quote it for you. He says this to everybody there. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. <clears throat> And the entire group went, what? <laughs> and um, there's actually explanations on the internet as to what he actually meant, because um, it can be kind of confusing. And the reason I bring that up is because on the surface of it, that's what Paul wrote. It seems clear enough, but what does it mean? It's a bit of a head scratcher. And I would also challenge us to be careful of perhaps assumptions we've held over the years that may not connect actually with what Paul meant. So let's be careful with that and let's have a look-see. So we'll look at three things in particular. It'll be a little bit of a shorter sermon this morning, but I just wanted to hone in on three things. Working to achieve righteousness is an all-or-nothing proposition, and we'll get to that in a minute. Obtaining righteousness is readily available to everybody. And thirdly, the evidence that a person will be saved. And we'll talk about will be saved as well as presently and past and all that. So we'll look at those three pieces the most closely. First of all, working to achieve righteousness is all or nothing. That's how he starts this off in verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness, being right with God, being as right as God. That's what righteousness means. The way of the righteousness that is by the law. In other words, if you want to achieve righteousness and obtain it by the law, by your attitudes and actions, then he says this, the man or the woman who does these things will live by them. If you're going to try that route, then you better do all of it and not miss a step, not one step. And Paul's been very clear about that all through the book of Romans, so we're not going to take a lot of time talking about that aspect of it. Many sermons that I've preached on this section through Romans have talked about we're saved by faith, not by works. That's so clear over and over and over again. He's quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5, in case you're wondering, and it's a summary statement that Paul is making uh, based on everything he's written about faith so far in works. The law that he's talking about was the law that's in Exodus. It's almost 90% of the time what Paul has in mind is Moses on Mount Sinai, and God gives him the law. It's in chapters 19 to 24. And in that section is the Ten Commandments, and that's the one we're most familiar with, the ethics that God gave him, the examples of what it is to love God and love your neighbor, basically. Kind of a commentary on just those two laws. And there are many other laws as well. And the idea was, it was a conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that if you obey the law, God will bless you in this life. If you disobey the law, then God will punish you in this life. It wasn't meant to convey eternal life and salvation. It was meant to drive us all to our knees to Christ, to the Messiah, the promised Savior. Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. And that's been the motif all along, all through the Old Testament. There's not a different way of being saved. Nobody expected they could do everything perfectly well. I mean, how could anybody really love God as we should? And, and, and how would we even know exactly how and when? It kind of escapes us. We're busy in the world. Stuff goes on. Our minds get distracted. How do we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? How does that apply? Do we do it? Nobody could fulfill it completely. 
So there isn't, there isn't a single covenant in the Old Testament, and there are six, that guarantee salvation or are a means of salvation. Only the new covenant in Christ Jesus in the New Testament fulfills all of that and wraps it all up. That was the intent of the Old Testament. And I'm sorry we call it the Old Testament. It should really be the first, volume one, and then the New Testament should be considered volume two. They're not meant to be separated and the Old Testament left in the dust, replaced by the new. The Old Testament pointed us to the new, and when the new covenant came and the New Testament was written, it brought the Old Testament into the New Testament, and Paul quotes the Old Testament more than any other writer, any other letter in the New Testament. So it's an integration of the whole, and I think sometimes we miss that. That's a little bit of a side point, but I think it's an important one, and one that I encourage you to look at. Look at Deuteronomy 9.4 in your outline. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. What's Moses warning the Israeli people? Don't you think for a minute you are self-righteous. You can't do it. He says this, no, it's on the account of the wickedness of these nations, which were so bad, that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So basically, Moses tells his own people, it's not because you guys are so good. It's because they're so awfully bad and the terrible things are going on, and God has decided enough's enough, and he's using you to drive them out. But don't think you're better. You're still sinners. Let's keep our heads on straight is basically what he's saying. Let's give glory to God. The only law, the only way that the law could save anybody is you have to be perfect 100% 100% of the time, all the time. It is literally all or nothing. And that should drive everybody to their knees. Verse 4, last Sunday, Paul concluded with this. Christ is the end of the law. The end. The end is like the end point, the, the sum total, the reason for, the summation of, the completion of. That's what he's saying. It all pointed to Jesus. And when Christ came, died, buried, rose, and ascended, and will return, all of that accomplishes God's purposes throughout the entire Old Testament. That's the focus. So Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who does it 100% correctly? No. What does he say? Believes. And that's Paul's message. And that's not just Paul. That's the Bible. Paul is simply quoting the Old Testament to bring to light the truth. Now let's move on. That's the first point. I'm going to leave it at that because we've looked at that quite often, and I think um, if you want to look at prior sermons, they're archived. Go back and look at all the various places. I hope that helps you. Secondly, obtaining righteousness is readily available by faith. Verses 6 through 8. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the Old Testament say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we're proclaiming. Again, he goes to the Old Testament. This is the part that I think creates some confusion. What is he talking about? Going up, going down. What, what's the problem here? Why does he talk like that, write that way? What's, he, what's this getting at? And if you're wondering yourselves, then I hope that by the grace of God, I can help open up our eyes to what's happening. First of all, he's quoting Moses in reference to Jesus, bringing Jesus Christ to the forefront here. He's looking back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and this is what Moses wrote. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea. And Paul made it deep, not across, but it's the same idea. Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. 
so that you may obey it. What's it going on here? Well, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. Can you and I get to heaven to find Jesus without that? No, we can't. Can you and I get to the bottom of the Marianas Trench and find Jesus? No. And Paul says, can we descend into the grave to bring Jesus up from the dead? No. In other words, it's impossible on our own effort to come to Jesus above or below. In other words, there's no way that we can reach the truth and obtain righteousness with God. There's no way we can come to the Messiah unless the Messiah came to us. So do we have to figure out where salvation is? Do we have to figure out what the truth is? Do we have to figure out how grace and mercy operates to us in Christ Jesus? The answer is no. Christ came to reveal to us everything we needed. It was all foretold in the Old Testament, came to life in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, can anyone obtain righteousness? Is it beyond our reach? The answer is no, because we didn't have to reach for it. Christ reached out to us. That's how come we can be saved by faith. And that's why Jesus assures us of our salvation, to receive the truth and believe it. So we couldn't reach heaven, and we couldn't gain eternal life without Christ coming to us. And God is so wonderful. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be sad if, if our faith was a bit like an Agatha Christie mystery novel? And, and by the way, isn't Agatha Christie's novels, if you've read them, and true, most mystery novels are like this, you, you cannot figure out who the culprit is until the end. And that's meant to be that way, right? The problem is, they never ever have ever given you enough information throughout the entire book until the end. You're hopelessly lost in the muck and the mire until they reveal it to you. Now, my dad was smart. He always read the last part. Then he went back and read the first part. He said, I just wanted to know what was going on. I thought, Dad, that would ruin the story. Not for him. He wanted to know ahead of time. So then he'd go back, oh, yeah, there we go. Wouldn't that be sad if we couldn't know what our salvation was all about and how to be righteous with, before God until we died and got there and found out too late? Oh, too late. That's kind of Paul's point. God came to us in Christ Jesus so we wouldn't have to look and search and strive and endeavor to obtain what we couldn't reach or couldn't understand. God gave us everything we needed. So Paul says we don't need to look around. It's easily obtained. Now the last part is where I want to talk a little bit about presumptions, assumptions. Maybe we've got this nailed down. Maybe we're a little bit lost in the, the woods. I told you it's a little bit of a shorter sermon. I think it's bound to be at this rate. <laughs> third point. Can you believe it? It's 1035 and the pastor's on his third point. It's not going to happen. But this will last an hour at least, right? So the evidence a person is saved. Now, this is really important, isn't it? How do I know I'm saved? How do I know somebody is saved? Is there any way to know? Well, we know generally that Jesus would tell us you can tell by the fruit, the fruit that's on the tree, so to speak, Good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit, you know, all that. So there are signs, the signs of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life, that there's a love and there's a grace and there's a mercy and there's a compassion and there's a humility and all of those sorts of things. We can see evidences of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, sure, and in our own. Ultimately, only God will know who is saved and who isn't, right? You can't look into someone's soul but how can that individual have the assurance of their salvation? The third point is this. The evidence a person will be saved is in these verses. Verses 9 to 13. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never 
be put to shame. In other words, we're not going to stand before God with sin written all over us and be ashamed. All of our sins can be forgiven or are forgiven in Christ. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Old Testament didn't have a different means of salvation. The Jews don't have a different track. Whether you're Jew or not, everybody's got the same means of salvation, Christ. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many of you are familiar with what's called the Roman Road of Salvation? It's a pretty commonly, widely known one and, and often used. Remember, Orville James told me once his mom led him through the Roman Road of Salvation, and that was part of his journey. Hi, Orville, if you're listening this morning. And uh, that was the way that he heard the gospel and his mom conveyed it to him. And I just want to show you uh, or read for you a bit of a snippet of it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, everybody without exception, and come short of the glory of God. Nobody's as good as God. Then Romans 6.23a, For the wages of sin is death. There are consequences. And we all know that we die someday unless Christ comes back first, right? Then Romans 6.23, though, continues. Aren't you glad there's a comma? But, but, the gift, and it's a gift, of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. And then it goes on in Romans 10.9, where we're reading this morning, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, I think it's easy to understand what Romans 10.9 says. It might escape us as to what it means. When I was growing up, I thought that it was a literal way of being saved. As long as you say, Jesus is Lord, and you better say it, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're done. And so for me, it, it was sort of a mechanistic means of salvation, like turn the crank and you get the product. You say these words and believe that he rose from the grave, well, that's all you need to do. But what if I couldn't speak? What if I had had a stroke and I lost my ability to communicate with words? And I'm supposed to say Jesus is Lord or I'm not saved? Now think of the logic. There's no logic in that, is there? couple of points here to ponder. First, demons. Can demons say that Jesus is Lord? They can literally say it. In fact, if you look at the Gospels in Mark 1.24, the demons say, I know who you are. I bet they know who Jesus is better than we do. I know who you are. And he says this, the demon, the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God, is what he's saying. I know who you are. You are God with us. So can they say Jesus is Lord? Yes. Does that mean they're saved? No. Do demons know that Jesus rose from the grave? You bet they do. So do they believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Yes. Can they say Jesus is Lord, literally? Yes. Are they saved? No. So the idea of cranking out someone's salvation by words and actions and stuff just doesn't fly. Right? Not only that, but to say Jesus is Lord, this is the only place in the New Testament where it says, if you say Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. If it's that important, don't you think it would be mentioned more than just one time? Obviously, there's something more going on than meets the eye. And that's why I said, let's be careful that we don't presume on what we're reading and think we really get it, because by now you should all be thinking, okay, then what is going on? What is really behind this? Well, there's a couple of things that lie behind what Paul is saying. First of all, Jesus is Lord, and that's kurios in Greek, but 
It is a translation of the Old Testament word for Yahweh. Yahweh is one of the names for God in the Old Testament. So if you know that Jesus is God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, and there's not multiple, it's not like Elohim's over here and Yahweh's over there. These are just different words to describe God in different ways. Elohim is sort of the the word that was normally used for the creator God, the, the big picture, the author of all that is. Yahweh is the one that knows every hair on your head. Yahweh's the one that knows when a sparrow falls. Yahweh is the intimate nature of God with us. So when we say Jesus is Lord, he knows the hairs on our head. He knows what we have going on in our lives intimately. This is the God that we know and love. This is God with us, Emmanuel, right? So we know that Jesus is God. And in fact, there's an old mosaic. I think it's in the... um, the Valley of Hinnom, and it's, eh, maybe not there, never mind, skip that one. It's right up there with the University of Oxford. Um, <laughs> Jesus' name, an early church in Mosaic, wrote, Jesus is God, as their confession. And it goes way back. This is an early understanding of the church. So what they're saying is, Jesus isn't just some God, or Jesus isn't just a Jesus of your own making, Buddhists, Hindus, American-made religions, and Islam all refer to Jesus, but not as Yahweh, not the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. They mistake the nature and the person of Jesus. So when we read Paul's words, Jesus is Lord, we know that Jesus isn't a creature of our own making or a created being, or some kind of a servant of God, but God, God the Son. There's more to this. It's this Jesus that we confess to the world. That's what Paul is saying. So, confess. It's more than just a statement of fact. It's an admission of the identity of Christ. It's an affirmation of faith. It's an affirmation of our covenant with Jesus, that we have a relationship with Jesus, that we have a union with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We know these things about Jesus. This is the real Jesus, and we can say so or write it or express it. People that don't have faith in Jesus Christ, who imagine Jesus to be a different sort of being or person, they can say the words, right? A university professor teaching religion can read this and say those words. But if they don't know Jesus, and Jesus doesn't know them, as he would say, there's no faith there. I used to think that if I could get someone to say the words, they're on the right track. Now I come to, now not recently, but I've realized in the past, it's more than that. It's an act of God's grace in them and through faith we see the salvation of God at work in them. Words or not. Then believe in your heart. Believe in your heart. It's not an emotionalism. It's not, let's get all wound up and stirred up and excited for Jesus, and then we have a down day and we think we're on the outs with God. We've met people, Jenny and I have over the years, in different Bible studies in different churches at different times, where occasionally there was the person there that thought that if they weren't at the top of the roller coaster, they weren't close with God. You know that screaming, highly exhilarating moment where you reach and you go over the top and you're going, ah, all the way. They want that high. They want that wow moment. They want it to be constant. This is not what Paul says is important. We have our ups and downs, like a roller coaster, emotionally. This is an internal core identity. You believe it's who you are. You know it. You own it. It's you. It's in you. That you know that not only did Jesus die on the cross, and that is validated by secular historians and everybody else, it's, there's evidence galore that Jesus, who would otherwise be a know-nothing person who had no money, no polit- political power, no anything that the world admired, 
But he gets mentioned more than anybody else in the first century, in the earliest writings that I know of. And the evidence is clear by multiple authors, non-believers, and believers alike, that Jesus died on the cross. That is a fact. But we also know that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the grave, the Easter wonder of life. And if that is who we are, and we know who Jesus is, then God has done a mighty miracle in our lives, and we will be saved. So it's not a mechanism. It's not a procedure. It's a living relationship with the living God. That's what makes this sing. That's what makes this go. It's not our righteousness or our achievement. It's God's achievement, and we got it from God. That's a gift from God, believing in our heart. That's our identity. And then he says this, you will be saved. Now, you might think, I thought I was saved already. Did, you, did that occur to you? You will be saved? Wait a minute. When I was younger, I said, Jesus is Lord, and I meant it, and I, I knew who Jesus was. I knew that he died on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the grave. He's coming back again someday. I know all that stuff. I know that I'm saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, so how come I will be saved? Am I still kind of on the fringe? Is there any kind of risk here? Haven't, hasn't this been cemented and guaranteed by God, the new covenant, sealed? I have the Holy Spirit, yes, so I'm sealed. It's guaranteed. Even on my worst day, it's still guaranteed. That's grace, right? I will be saved? What does that mean? The Bible talks about salvation in three tenses. It talks about the moment you first believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the moment that you were justified before God. That's the moment that all of your sins passed in the moment and all the future sins were forgiven by God, and God then declared you righteous. The present tense, salvation, is also found in the Bible, and that we call sanctification. People say, I don't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, this side of heaven, yes, because we're not perfect. We're not able yet to love God 100% of the time, every moment of every day and night. We're not able to love our neighbor as ourselves, even though maybe we want to, we fall short, right? And we are humble and we know it. But maybe this year I will be doing more of the Lord's work the Lord's way than I did the prior year. I like to say this. If anybody says the Christians are hypocrites, the answer is always, well, you should have seen them last year. Right? Isn't that the great comeback? Isn't that what sanctification is? It's a process. And doesn't the Bible say love covers a what? A multitude, multitude, a multitude of sins. Wow, that doesn't sound very shiny. But that's the truth, and we're working on it, and we want to. That's the Holy Spirit in us, and it just takes time. We shouldn't be impatient with each other or ourselves. We should just put our best foot forward. If we slip and fall back, then get back on your feet and say, Jesus, I messed up. I want to step forward with you. Help me to walk and step with your Holy Spirit. That is the right attitude. That is the being saved. That's the present tense use of salvation in the New Testament. Then there's one more, and I'm really glad it's there. We will be saved. You know what that is? Our final arrival in glory. No more death. No more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sin. We won't have to confess. We don't have to worry about whether we're going to love God or our neighbor anymore. We will have arrived by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's work in us by the plan of God. We will be absolutely as right as God in the end when we see him face to face. So we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so when Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. He's talking about glory. For a community in Rome who may have struggled with who's in and who's out, remember the initial 
few sermons. The difficulty they had was the Gentile Christian community outnumbered the Jewish Christian community, and they were having a difficult time getting along with each other. And so Paul has been after the church all along throughout this entire letter, bringing them to their knees before Jesus, admitting that they are in fact sinners, but they're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And there is no difference. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So let's be a church. Let's be one in Christ. Let's move forward. Let's unite and thank you, God, for grace. That's what Paul's been after the whole time. And in these passages here, he's talking to the Israeli people mostly about their role in the life of Jesus in the church. So how can you and I be assured that we will be saved? Well, were you? Are you being? Well, you will be. That's what Paul says. The assurance of our salvation is in Christ Jesus, the new covenant. So do you have to find it? Do you have to work for it? Do you have to achieve it? Do you have to memorize something? Do you have to belong to the church? Do you have to be baptized? Do you need to take communion? Do you have to do this, that, and the other thing? Or another way, you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't do this, and you don't do that. Is that enough to make us righteous? Remember what Moses said? If you're wanting to be righteous by your own efforts and your own personality and your own being, then you're going to have to do it all perfectly right. But by the time you've read it, it's too late. Too late. You've already got a life behind you, and there's already sin in your life. Paul says, you've obtained it already by faith. If you know Jesus, you know who he is, and you know that God raised him from the grave, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and that's a sign that you are, in fact, saved. And in fact, verse 9 is all future, but verse 10 is all present tense. Paul just basically says the same thing all over again, but in that tense. So the question I have to close with is this. Is my acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and my conviction that God raised him from the dead like the demons, or which leads to destruction, or is it like Paul's leading to salvation? That final step. Verses 11 through 13, Paul closes with these words. As the Old Testament says, Scripture, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You are right with God by God's declaration. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and, will rich, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, Jew or Gentile, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and that's not a literal name, it means the very being, the entirety of the Lord, the real true Jesus, will be saved. That was written to the Christian community that I think reading Paul's letter had a little hand-wringing maybe. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm okay with God, maybe I'm not. Maybe the Jewish community was bringing in some works thinking, you know, you need to be circumcised and some other things were going on. Maybe the Gentiles who had not really understood the Old Testament or had read it, maybe they had, maybe they hadn't, had a little pride going on, thinking they were now the top dog and the Israeli people had been pushed aside by God and now aren't we all that? And Paul says, no, pride has nothing to do with your standing with God. It's all by grace and you're saved by faith. Faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, your word is such a comfort that, Lord God, I think we all know and we need sometimes that, that grounding, that assurance, that place that we know that it's not mere words or behaviors that save us and, and make us right. You by your grace and mercy, make us right. And you give us the faith to believe in Jesus. Not the Jesus that's made up and manufactured by people, creating a Jesus in their own image. But Lord God, Jesus is the literal image of our Heavenly Father. He's the Son of God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. We know it. We believe it. 
And God, we thank you that Christ rose from the grave, that we have eternal life. We have a relationship. The Holy Spirit is here right now, living in the heart of all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, and that is not an achievement. Faith is a gift, and it comes from you. And so, God, thank you so much for revealing Jesus to us. Thank you, God, for your church. All one in Christ Jesus, many languages, many cultures, many ways of worshiping. But Lord God, your word is true throughout the world. The saving grace of Jesus is being made known throughout the world and is. And I thank you, God, that the future, our glory, is in your hands. You're going to get us there. You're going to bring us home. And you are the one that's going to continue to make everything right, even in the midst of our wrongness. You make us right. Thank you for Jesus. We owe you everything. All life. Everything. And for anybody here this morning that's just wondering what, where to go with this, if they're not there already, just say, Lord, I'm, I'm ready. I, I've heard the word. I get it. I believe it. I'm yours. You're mine. Here I am. Mold me, shape me, make me, but I need your help to do it. And I thank you so much that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross, that all my sins are forgiven, <laughs> and it's a gift. And I receive it, and I've opened it, and I love it. And for those that are still on that journey, just say, Lord, I'm still on the journey. I pray that you just continue to touch my heart and mind and help me to find you. Well, not find you. I think that would be the wrong way to say it. Lord, I know you're seeking me, and help me, Lord, to open up my heart and mind to you. May your Holy Spirit make me thirsty for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You love every single one here so very much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's stand. Let's sing. God is good all the time, right? God is so good. I'm so grateful. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all God's people could say, Amen. And I just want to give you a little bit of taste of what's going to come after I'm done with Romans, Lord willing. We will finish Romans someday. I was thinking that what I'd like to do, and I'm, I'm mentioning it now because I want you to be thinking about this. I want to do a sermon series on your questions. Your questions. And you, you can write, email me, write them down. Don't just tell me because I'll forget it. That might be another question you have. Um, Write it down, email me, and I will keep these things, and then when we're done with Romans, I'm going to address those questions. Okay? Wide open is anything and everything. I think it's, it'd be a great, enjoyable, and thriving time together. All right? So be thinking about that, and in the meantime, come on down to the fellowship hall. Have some goodies, and remember, next Sunday after church is our potluck lunch down there. Bring a side salad, a side dish, uh, and, or dessert. Your call. Desserts are my preference, but salads are Jenny's. And we'll meet and we'll eat together and have a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you.